0: What's up, storytellers? Today's episode is brought to you by Fab Fit Fun. If you don't already know about it, it's a seasonal subscription box with full size beauty, fitness, and lifestyle products. Be sure to hang around at the end of the show so I can tell you more about my experience with their box and listen closely for the special discount code just for our storytellers. A special thank you to our listener, Sarah Bates, who recently left a review for us on iTunes and said, Yin is such a fantastic, authentic host. She digs deep into the process of storytelling while keeping the conversation casual. As an aspiring novelist, I get so much more out of Yin's conversations than I ever could from a book on process or craft. My only regret is I didn't find this podcast sooner. It would have been amazing to meet up with the 88 Cups of Tea team when they pass through Philly. I wish I could sit down and have 1 million billion trillion cups of tea with Yin and give her the same number of stars, but iTunes only allows 5. Keep up the lovely conversations. You're shining a light on those of us stumbling through the dark. Oh my gosh, Sarah Bates, you are so awesome. Thank you so much for that really lovely, thoughtful, and creative review. And you just made my day. Thank you so much for taking the time to write that. And I'm so happy to have you in our community. Now onto our guests, we have R.F. Kuang on the show with us. Her debut novel, The Poppy War, was recently released and is the first installment in a trilogy that grapples with drugs, shamanism, and China's bloody 20th century. R.F. immigrated to the U.S. as a child and just graduated from Georgetown University where she studied Chinese history with a focus on Chinese military strategy, collective trauma, and war memorials. In addition to working on the rest of her installments of the Poppy War Trilogy, she's a 2018 Marshall Scholar and will be heading to the University of Cambridge to do her graduate studies. In today's episode, we talk about her views on staying preoccupied and expanding her life experiences to help her continue to craft stories with depth, and she walks us through her writing journey from being self-taught to immersing herself in writing workshops. We talk about how the second book syndrome has been like for her, the importance of pacing in your manuscript and keeping your readers intrigued throughout your story, how to have a successful querying process, and find an agent who will be a champion of your work. Further into the conversation, we touch on why it's important to honor our family stories and memories, and we get into how to write and edit difficult and emotional scenes that connect closely to you and your loved ones. We wrap up the conversation by diving into listener questions that were posted in our private Facebook group. Here's a few examples. I would like to know more about your experiences participating in the Odyssey and the CSSF writing workshops. How did they contribute to your growth as a writer, and would you recommend this for people to attend them? Oftentimes, Asian stories aren't seen as marketable in the publishing world. What struggles did you face in publishing, if at all any? I'd love to know how she balanced what I can only deduce is a pretty time-consuming college workload. And does she have tips for people who feel like they're just floundering at doing more than one and a half things at once? As a little side note, she squeezed in time for a conversation before rushing to head out to meet up with her dad for Father's Day. So we make sure to make the most out of our time together, and her episode is packed with so much incredible content. Now let's jump right in. We have RF Quang with us today. How are you?
1: I'm really good. So excited to be here.
0: I'm so excited to have you on. We have a lot of listeners who are really big fans of yours and they got super excited when they found out you're going to be on the show and thank you for taking time out on father's day to chat with us too i really appreciate it so for today listeners we have about 45 minutes and before we dive into more about the poppy war i would love to get into more of your background and when you first fell in love with storytelling
1: yeah. I mean, I have always loved writing and creating characters. I actually got into drawing manga and art first because like what Chinese girl does not read manga. Um, and my mom was an artist. So that's how I was trained. Oh, but I quickly realized I like the stories more than I like drawing itself because I'm not that good at that. So in high school, I did this thing where instead of keeping a diary, like most people, I would take the emotional issues that I was going through or things I was thinking about and refract them into fictional scenarios with, like, much cooler characters who lived in skyscrapers, who rode, like, skateboards that could fly or whatever. Um, And I didn't realize it at the time, but that's, like, what novelists do. Like, you take your inner angst and turmoil, et cetera, and make it a cool thing instead of just, like, a straightforward autobiography. But I didn't really consider storytelling as a profession until... I sold my first book, actually, because my parents are like, you need to get a stable job after you graduate. English majors can't do that. And I was mm-hmm. like, this is a false dichotomy, but I will buy wholeheartedly into it um, because I want financial stability, too. Um, so then when I took a gap year in Beijing between my sophomore and junior years, I suddenly did not have homework for like the first time in my life that I can remember And I was like, I want to start a project. So downloaded Scrivener, started writing 1,000, 2,000 words every day, and in three months I had a novel. And that's when I started thinking, oh, maybe this thing will take off, and maybe this can be something I can make a living out of. And I've just gotten really lucky since. And. Yeah, it's it's been cool. It's been really unexpected and cool.
0: Whoa. Okay, I'm gonna unpack a few things. First of all, you're freaking badass um, <laughs> that you're able to do that in three months. I'm like, oh, my mouth is. I wish you could see me via like Skype video. My mouth is open. My jaw is dropped. I'm like, what? Three months?
1: That's well, insane. to be clear, a first draft in three months. It was but revised still, many times after.
0: Oh my gosh. But still, though, so, like some people take a really long time, including myself. So I tip my hat to you. You are awesome. I think that's really, that's really cool. And also I, I do want to touch on your parents talking about making sure to have financial stability. Cause I'm also my, my dad's Taiwanese, my mom's Chinese, Malaysian. And I also wanted to pursue the arts, um, specifically acting. And my mom more so and my parents were like, oh, hell no. Like, you might as well be a beggar on the streets.
1: Well, it's an immigrant thing, right? Like, you fight so hard to get here and all they want for us is a better life than they had and stability. Like, they they never feel secure. Stability is the most important thing for them.
0: Absolutely. So how were you able to... Did you have to convince them or you kind of just like did it and they kind of followed suit? and they're like, all right,
1: well, I guess she's doing it. Well, you know, once they heard what the offer was for the advance, they're like, like, all right. (laughs) Um, But I, they're also, I think it's easier for them to be on board because I am never going to be a full-time writer Uh, because I don't want to. Um, I think I would get really, really bored. I can't spend an entire day writing without going stir crazy. And I'm one of those people who has to keep their brains occupied with a bunch of different types of tasks. Otherwise, like things just go downhill really, really fast. And uh, I mean, so what I want my day job to be is teaching. I want to be a professor which you know does come with a stable annual income and like health insurance and like a retirement fund, etc. So like since I have that too, they're like, okay, you know what, like this this can be your very lucrative side hobby. We've
0: had very few authors before saying that they definitely need day jobs to also keep them preoccupied, or they will quickly get bored.
1: Well, I'm like I'm 22, right? And yeah. I think, like, the best books I've ever read have changed the way that I thought about the world or taught me something I never knew before. And, like, with the life experience and things I've learned at 22, like, what can, like, what do I have to say about the world? And if I stop learning and growing and doing, like, other complex things now, like, what on earth am I going to write about Mm -hmm. that is human and, like, changes the way we think about things um so it's really it's just the fear that if I stop doing other things now my writing will become really stale really quickly and I don't want that to happen
0: oh my gosh I I love that you said that you actually just graduated right congratulations by the way that's so much so exciting did you have a fun time during your graduation day
1: oh yeah it was awesome my whole family flew in we had really good food it was a really really good weekend
0: Oh, my gosh. Well, congratulations. I'm going into that, you studied Chinese history at Georgetown. Yes. So what would you love to teach?
1: I want to teach history, modern Chinese history. So I am going to England in the fall on a Marshall scholarship. Oh, my gosh. Congrats. I'll do my, thank you so much. I'll do my MPHILs in modern Asian history and then come back and do my PhD in the same field and then teach it forever, I guess.
0: <laughs> That's awesome just rewinding a little bit, you had a gap here, and that's where you were able to work on your first draft and knocked it out in three months. Um, right. Do you take any specific classes where you learn more of craft and technique?
1: Um, so before I sold The Poppy War, I had not had any formal writing training. Wow. Um, but I'd had craft training in the sense that I read a lot, and I illegally pirated a lot of um, <laughs> books about craft and world building and character um, while I was in China, because like, can't find that at English language books. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's very true. Um, yeah, so I was self taught for book one, but after I sold it that summer, I went to Odyssey, which is this six week long fiction writing workshop in New Hampshire, I think, uh, St. Anselm College. Jean Cavellas is the instructor, and that was incredible and everything I needed because second book syndrome hits you really hard, and it's this thing where you've written something that is good good Mm -hmm. enough to sell, but you don't know why, because you don't understand enough of craft to tell what was good about it and what was weak about it. And you don't know how to replicate it. And I think that's what a lot of people struggle with. So I was flailing trying to replicate what I'd just done. And I came to Odyssey at exactly the right time because Jean like distilled all the tips and tricks of craft into like really easy internalizable lessons and that's when I figured out oh I'm good at this I'm weak at this this is what I have to work on yeah so it was really really good to have had that opportunity That was for the
0: working on the second book. So for the first book, you mentioned you had no, you didn't go to any workshops yet. So was that process like you worked closely with the editor? Did you feel like you learned from your editor in viewing your work and breaking it down and how to approach it for the next time around? Was that helpful?
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I learned A lot from my agent initially, actually, because so my agent is Hannah Bowman, and she's a very editorial agent. So she actually put me through like six rounds of revisions before we went on submission. And the biggest thing I learned, like the main focus of those revisions, was pacing, right? Like how to how to keep scenes exciting, how to never have a lull in the action. Because like because I do history, I like to take long detours and explain. Like so, book two, uh, the first draft of it had. The history of canals and like riverine systems and like shipbuilding, which i thought was incredibly important because a lot of it takes place on rivers and ships uh, and hana was like this is incredibly boring we do not need this you should cut this so i really learned the importance of um you know it's like the tip of the iceberg thing you need to know the entire iceberg but the reader only needs to see the tip and also including only the information that is necessary to move the plot along and being oh. able to kill your darlings Like, it was hard, but she made me do it. That's so amazing that
0: you have someone like that on your team. Because I know also there are some agents who are not as hands-on.
1: Yeah, I mean, it all depends on what you want in an agent, right? Because I know a lot of authors who don't like it when their agents get super editorial. They just want to go out on submission. So when my friends were querying, I told them, when you get that phone call, that should be one of the first questions you ask about their work style. Like, are you editorial or are you rather hands-off? Because, like, different people want different things. I just happen to really appreciate her editorial perspective because she has never made a suggestion that I disagree with. I think she's one of the most incisive story editors I've ever met or gotten to work with. And yeah, I feel really lucky.
0: Do you mind if I interject right here and ask a little bit about querying? Because most of our listeners are writers, whether that's aspiring or just published or are in the querying trenches. So do you have any advice on, I know, you know, you tell your friends, make sure to ask like, you know, what their style is. It's more hands-on or hands-off and like figure out what you want. Outside of that, is there anything else that you can share uh, and pass on to our community? Like, Whether that means querying tips as in how to actually write the queries or how to get through the querying process without having a panic attack.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think two things. The first is that research on an agent is really, really important. And that means not just reading what they say they're looking for on their agent introduction page on their website. But also, I stalked a lot of people's Twitters, um, which is not <laughs> that weird because it's all like public information. Yeah. But the way that somebody tweets, uh, you can get a sense of the issues that they like to think about and the stories they represent and the stories they like to tell. And that's a pretty good way to suss out whether or not you'd be a good fit. Because, like, really, like, your political ideology is gonna come into play if you write fiction that is heavily political. So, you know, try to see what side your agent lands on and also like research the books that they've represented and actually go out and read them. I mean, maybe don't, that's a, that's a big time commitment. Maybe don't do that unless you get the phone call from them, but at least like look up the titles, look up what the books are about to assess whether or not they'd be interested in your story. And then the second thing, which I, I, Uh, I recently had this conversation with a friend who was going through the querying process and I liked the metaphor I came up with. Querying is sort of like Tinder, it's like dating. Um, And a lot of times it's like easy to feel the sting of rejection when somebody doesn't even want to see a a partial manuscript or like reads the full and is like, this is not for me. And when I was querying, when I got that, I would feel like, wow, like this, this really sucks. Like my work just must be objectively bad. Um, But that's actually not true, right? If an agent Mm -hmm says, this is not for me, they're doing you a favor, because I realize the way that you vibe with your agent matters so much. It is really important to have somebody who will champion your work and be its biggest advocate, and who really falls in love with it. And if they're just lukewarm about your work, or if they're not crazy about your storytelling style, which is entirely subjective, like people represent and like completely different things. And it's not a judgment on your writing ability or the message you want to tell the world but rather that agent being like doing you a favor by being frank and honest and saying this is probably good for somebody else but I would not be the best person for you and you should be glad that they don't represent you so it's easy to feel like when they say, Oh, I hope this finds a place elsewhere, like, Oh, they're just being nice. Like, rejection sucks. Like, nothing's going to take this thing out of that. But that's actually true. Like, they are hoping that you'll find somebody else who will champion it. They probably do think it's good. They probably just realize they can't sell it as well as somebody else could. Mm-hmm. Um, so, once you internalize that, like, there's nothing really you can say to somebody in the middle of querying that makes it easier because I remember when I was crying and I would read advice like that I'd be like yeah whatever bullshit like I just want to be represented but like a bad agent or an agent who doesn't care that much about your work is can be worse than having no agent at all so I don't think it takes the sting out of things but I think it's good to keep in mind
0: thank you so much for that that was really good
1: Oh my God. I just talk really fast because I did debate in high school. No, no, no. I think it's helpful,
0: honestly. And also because we don't have that much time. So it's great because I'm like, this is awesome. Thank you so much for talking quickly because it gives us (laughs) way more content. I I thank you for it. And now I want to segue into your book that I'm super excited to dive in and talk about. But before we do that, could you give us a snapshot of The Poppy War?
1: The Poppy War is basically Avatar The Last Airbender. But if Azula was the main character and everybody was on drugs.
0: That was so good. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, done it, done. All right. And then from that awesome summary, what prompted you to write The Poppy War? Like, give us that moment where you had that aha moment and you're like, okay, I need to put this down in a book. When was that moment? What catalyzed that?
1: I had two aha moments. Nice. Uh, The first was when I went to China during my gap year and was spending a lot of time with my grandparents who all lived through World War II. And had a lot of crazy stories to tell about that time Mm -hmm. that I had just never been told because they're in China, I'm in the United States, and everybody has that experience when your mom is like, okay, talk to your grandma on the phone, and you're like, no, I'm busy, I want to watch Netflix. So I got a lot closer to them, and hearing those stories made me really want to write it down and make it into a narrative, but I didn't want to make it a family autobiography because that would have required hours of dredging up a lot of traumas for them yeah. that I didn't want to put them through because like detail is really important and you have to do fact checking and you have to ask them over and over about events that they would rather forget about. Mm. So making it a fantasy, making it like fictional is a sort of shield against that because then in the blank spots, you can explore and just imagine what you would have seen in those scenarios, yeah. how you would have reacted. And it takes a lot of empathy and imagination, but. Uh, That work is easier to do, I think, if you know the relevant context than, you know, sitting them down for hours and hours on end and recording them and making them talk about it. Also, like, fantasy is really cool. So why not? So I had, like, a few ideas. I had a setting. I had a character. And Rin is, like, very heavily inspired by Mao's uh, personal trajectory um so then I was wondering but like what is like the emotional core of this story. So while I was doing research I read Iris Stange's The Rape of Nanjing. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I read it maybe in like a day and a half. I just could not oh. stop and at the end that's when I realized like that's that's going to be the engine of the book. That's what everything in parts one and two has to lead up to and i don't want to like spoil it for people who haven't read it yet but yeah that's where this is going
0: thank you for all these details i know that that book. Cause I, I actually picked it up and i couldn't even finish it honestly But it, i honestly should get back to it but um that was like actually my first exposure to the history of what happened in china
1: it was mine
0: too I didn't know because I I grew up personally with, you know how you said that your grandparents had stories? Like I used to have Japanese best friends growing up uh, in elementary school before they moved back to Japan. I remember when my great grandma heard this, for me at that time, because I wasn't exposed to what happened with the Japanese soldiers and what they did, I had no idea. So I was just going on about the friends and then I was wondering, why the hell was my great grandma being so hostile and saying really nasty things? And I was like, whoa, you sound like such a hateful person. But then when she was like, you know what, they did some really horrific things at my time. And I had a witness rape and there's killings. And I was like, wait, what? And I, I, that's when I started Googling. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I didn't, I didn't know any of this. It wasn't even covered in high school. I don't remember them touching on this at all.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's why it's been referred to as the forgotten Holocaust. Yeah, exactly.
0: Are you okay sharing like one example of like what your grandparents shared?
1: I've written an essay about this, actually. Oh,
0: okay, I'll have that linked up then.
1: It's called How to Speak to Ghosts or How to Talk to Ghosts. And it's, it was published by Uncanny Magazine back oh, okay. in March, I think. And I think like that's where I said much more eloquently anything that I could say now, because it's like not super easy to talk about. Um, But I remember this moment when I went back to my dad's village for Qingmingjia, which is the tomb sweeping festival, Mm. um, which is where you go to the graves and you pay respects, which was a big deal for me because I, like, you know how in the United States, a lot of your white friends, like, can go visit their grandparents, grandparents in cemeteries, Mm -hmm. and they're sort of, like, rooted to the ground that way. Mm -hmm. I always felt groundless because nobody I knew was buried there. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that connection to the ground is really important in Chinese culture. Mm -hmm. So, like, seeing my relatives, like, laid out in the ground and, like, kneeling before that, it was this experience I can't even begin to describe. But after we did that, we went back to my dad's, childhood home which had been in the family for years and years and it was like this like really simple like mud brick place and I was like what are these holes in the walls and my dad was like oh those are bullet holes (gasps) um, from left by Japanese soldiers like they're still there after all this time
0: oh my god a lot to think about wow okay so thank you for sharing that and i was the article also available online yeah it's free to read online would it be all right if we link that to your show notes page because i think that'd be really good extra reading for everybody to just understand the history and like your experiences talking to your grandparents about it but um thank you for that and thank you for pointing me to the resource going into your work now what was the most difficult scene for you and i imagine there were probably many but do you remember there was one that really stood out to you that was really like holy crap i don't know if i can i can write past this and if there was that moment can you share like how you got yourself out of that
1: yeah um it's i mean i always tell people it's chapter 21 like Mm -hmm. chapter 21 is the rape of nanjing chapter and that that one took me longer than every other chapter to write because it's the one that's the closest to the truth right like that's Mm -hmm when the fantasy shield sort of falls away. Because I didn't exaggerate anything. Everything that happens actually happens happened in real life. And that's like hard to realize. Yeah. And I had a lot of readers tell me, oh, when I realized that this was all factual, like, like the horror intensified by 10. It was really difficult, especially because there's the scene about two sisters and what happened to them. And I have a younger sister. And mm. I was like, I kept picturing us and her and I was like, I, I can't do this. Um, so I would like write maybe a paragraph, an hour, go take a long walk, like listen to very happy pop music, watch a lot of The Office, and then put myself back in. Um, and taking a lot of those mental breaks, like just you know going to the gym, like thinking about other stuff was good. And that really slowed down the book writing process. But um, once I finished it, I was like, I, okay, now like we're close to the end now. There are only a couple more chapters to go. We can do this. Um, but it's also the chapter that has been difficult for me to edit and revise because like, I don't, I don't even want to go back and read it. I've done a lot of readings and I've reread large chunks of The Poppy War since, it's been a while now since I sold it and like reading large chunks of it, it's, it's fun because a lot of it is new to me. Mm -hmm. Um, but I I will not go back and read that chapter. I hope it's good, but I'm not going to read it.
0: No, I completely understand. Do you think you're going to be going forth with part two and part three? Because I'm sure there's going to be a lot more similarly difficult scenes as well. Do you think you're going to be approaching them differently or kind of in the same way to kind of take that psychological break for yourself?
1: Yeah, I mean, taking I'm pretty good at recognizing when I need to take a break. And books two and three are also similarly mapped on 20th century Chinese history and a lot of the atrocities and tragedies of that era I don't think there's anything in them that is like holocaust level, Mm -hmm. but I mean the communists did a lot of bad things Mm -hmm. um, and all of that is described in equally graphic detail.
0: I think a part of being a writer is just being a storyteller, being a human being, right? And just knowing how to deal with our, our moments where it's most difficult to us and like how to move forward from there. So everything that you just shared is so incredibly inspiring. And I do want to, before we get into listener questions, because I know we have about 15 minutes left, um, and I just want to make sure I get through as many of them as possible. But before we get there, could you share w- what was the most difficult moment in your overall, just your life? And how were you able to move forward? Hmm.
1: I mean, there's like the really, really dark stuff, but um, here's a more lighthearted anecdote when so when you have a certain type of visa in china you have to leave the country every two months to renew it like you have to exit and then come back in order for that visa to stay valid which is a weird rule um but i realized once i'd overstayed my visa for a couple days so i bought an emergency flight to seoul which was like the quickest cheapest flight from beijing to a different country yeah um and then when i got to seoul i lost my passport (gasps) um which was Horrible because not only did that mean like there was no way I was getting back into China and like I needed to get back into China because that's where all my stuff was and where I worked. I also needed to fly to the U.S. for a conference at Stanford like two weeks later. But my tickets were out of China and I like couldn't rebook them because they're incredibly expensive. And also because I did not have any money in Korean banks and only had like did not have a hotel room and didn't know anybody in Seoul And this is like, not even to compare my experience to people who are being deported, people who are actually stateless, people who do not have American citizenship, but like that sheer panic and that sheer sense of statelessness and groundlessness comes the closest. I think that I, who have so much privilege as somebody who got American citizenship will ever come close to like feeling what that is like, which is why like immigration issues matter a lot to me. Not just because I'm an immigrant and it is a massive stroke of good fortune that I get to stay and other people don't. But that sense of not knowing when you'll be asked to leave if you're allowed to be in that country, because it wasn't clear if I was allowed to be in Korea even without a passport. And I think like there was this moment where I was waiting outside the U.S. embassy and there are always two lines. There's the really long line for everybody, uh, non U.S. nationals who want to get visas and the line for people, American citizens who, you know, just walk right in and do whatever they need to. And they wouldn't let me into either line because they're like, you don't even have any country's passport with you. And like, we don't trust that you're American. And like, I could not contact my parents or anybody because, you know, I didn't have a working phone in Korea. So I had to use a payphone, And eventually I reached them and got some documents like my birth certificate. But it was, 48 hours of sheer and constant panic. And I finally got through the embassy and got an emergency passport, got a new visa and went back to China and everything worked out in the end. But that sucked so hard because I like also have the tendency to spiral. Cause like I have pretty bad anxiety when stuff like that starts happening. So I just like I didn't eat and I didn't sleep and I was just like constantly on the verge of tears. And there are people whose every day of their existence is living in fear of being asked to leave their country. And, and like what I went through doesn't even come close to that. So yeah, I don't know. Y'all didn't ask for a lecture in immigration politics. No, I appreciate that. It is really important. And also, I'm really sorry that you
0: had to go through that. I, for anyone having to go through that and that you had to go through that for those 48 hours you were saying, I mean, I can't even begin to imagine. I'm just like, I'm so quiet because I'm imagining myself putting myself in your shoes and I probably would have had a breakdown crying.
1: And I did. But like, despite how much it sucked, I had an immense amount of privilege, monetary privilege, like, uh, and also like I was not the sort of skin tone to be discriminated against in Seoul. And I was, in fact, an American citizen and ended up being able to prove that. So it worked out really well and like rather quickly for me and it does not for most people.
0: Yes. I mean, I can't just, I can't even imagine like people who wouldn't even have the amount of money to make that phone call. You know what I mean? To even have that change on them, to make that call, to even ask for the documents. Like what happens then when you have nothing on you? You're, it's just complete isolation. And that is so fucking scary.
1: Right. Like when you're fleeing your home and all your documents have burned, like what do you do?
0: Yeah. What do you do? What do you do? I know that you said that that is something that you care a lot about. Are there any resources that you, you trust and that you could share with our community to look into for those who are very much in, like after hearing your experiences, you know, recognizing that maybe who knows that maybe their neighbors or their friends or relatives have gone through that. And if they want to be involved in somehow adding progress to that, do you know if there's any resources that we can point to?
1: Um, I mean, there are a ton. I'd have to like sit down and do the responsible internet searching, but one thing I recently learned about from my agent's Twitter actually is this thing called bail funds, I believe, and it's like funds for money to bail people out of jail when they've been like held and are going to get deported. And I, I read some headlines that said that this is like the most effective thing that you can do with your money if you are interested in helping cases of deportation. So. I need to go through and, like, do more reading and figure out exactly how it works. But, like, at the outset, that is something I had not thought about, which seems like a really good idea. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've told my boyfriend, like, for my birthday presents and Christmas presents, will you please just donate oh, that to them is so. For me. Oh, my God, I love um, that. And, what a great yeah, idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to, like, be irresponsible and be like, oh, everybody go do this because, like, they might be awful for some reason. I don't know. I need to do my research. But that's just like something to look up and think about.
0: I appreciate that because that's something I would have never thought of. Like I didn't even realize that was actually an avenue that we could take. So thank you for that awareness. So just people can look that up and just check into that also want to make sure that we wrap up the last few minutes that we have together with some listener questions let's just say that you had a lot i'm like scrolling through and yours is like bombarded with so many listeners who are so freaking excited there's so many exclamation marks so many capitalized letters let me go through some of these right now Judy Lynn was asking, and first of all, she said she loved The Poppy War. It was such an amazing book. Um, She did ask, I would like to know more about your experiences participating in the Odyssey and the CSSF writing workshops. How did they contribute to your growth as a writer? And would you recommend this for people to attend them?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think that Jean is a wizard. I think she understands story on a level. Jean Cabellas is the instructor at Odyssey. And she understands story and pacing and craft at a level that is superhuman and Mm. is a really harsh and critical instructor but in a way that always pushes you forward and is never done out of malice or never done to make you feel bad Mm. but always because she knows you can do better than this right like because the worst thing is to have a writing teacher who's like oh everything you do is great and we went into Odyssey and I was like I'm good at writing I sold the book and Jean's like you know nothing (laughs) um and I don't even know how to... I actually wrote an essay about my Odyssey experience. I could probably find oh, it. Oh, great. Google so I'll it. have that linked as well. Odyssey. Yeah, and that's where I detail all the reasons why it was really helpful for me. Um, the I I don't know how many S's and F's there
0: are. I think she wrote there are two S's. Like C-S-S-F, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's taught by Kij Johnson I. Um, KU Kansas in Lawrenceville and it's different because it is not about craft but rather plotting so that's for more advanced writers I think if you have a good idea of how to string sentences and paragraphs together Uh, but you need help with the structure of a novel and the content and like once you have characters and an idea and a world like what do you do with that and it's smaller and what we do is sit around in a circle and like help each other plot our novels and I would also really recommend it. It's a different experience and not as useful, I think, for novices or beginning writers. It was incredibly useful for me because that's where I got the outline for book three, uh, which before then had seemed so huge and complex, I didn't even know how to outline it. And I love Kidge so much. She is an incredible teacher. Her work is also amazing. She wrote The Dream Quest of Bow Bo, which I still can't get over. It's like one of the best novellas I've ever read. Um, so yeah, they're different experiences and you should make the call based on where you think you are in your career, but I would wholeheartedly recommend both of them.
0: Ooh, love that. Okay, thank you so much for that. Now for our next question, we have Stephanie I, and she actually wrote a lot of questions, but I'm going to just choose one of them just for time's sake. Oftentimes, quote-unquote, Asian stories aren't seen as marketable in the publishing world. What struggles did you face in publishing, if at all any?
1: I I actually got really lucky with The Poppy War. I think I entered the industry at a time when editors like David, who is my editor at Harper Voyager, were actively searching for these stories. And I think this is because of the work of authors like Ken Liu and Cindy Pon, who were selling these Asian fantasies at a time when nobody thought that Asian fantasies would sell, and they proved them wrong. So I think we're really riding the coattails of like the greats, and they've carved out this space for us. But the difficulty that I've seen for other people is that sometimes publishers will assume that all Asian stories are the same, and once once they signed a Chinese fantasy, they're not going to sign another yeah. Chinese fantasy. Even though like Chinese history is massive, and like that's like saying, oh, we've signed like a fantasy, like a fantasy, a medieval fantasy. We're not going to do another one of those, and mm-hmm. that's not true because like they they get like multiple book deals a year, um, and that's really that's been frustrating for them. Um, and there's really no way around it other than to get a really good agent who is smart and knows how to pitch it as being different from what's on the market already. Um, but yeah, there there's still that perception that all Asian stories are the same and like not even all like Chinese stories from the same province are the same, not to mention like Chinese versus Japanese versus Korean, versus Malaysian Singaporean (laughs) stories.
0: They're all preach Yes. So much more work to be done now the last and I'll do the this is the last final question just so we can make sure we wrap you up on time is from Karis Rogerson she wrote ah with lots of exclamation marks and capitalized letters she said I don't even have questions I'm just so excited she's so cool wait (laughs) I lied I do have a question I'd love to know how she balanced what I can only deduce is a pretty time-consuming college workload history major at Georgetown seems like a BFD uh I think she means big fucking deal if you ask me (laughs) sorry I'm just like I'm like this old lady trying to read all this stuff Uh, trying to translate as she's like with writing a masterful and intense and by all reviews really incredible adult fantasy novel and does she have tips for people who feel like they're f- just floundering at doing more than one and a half things at once <laughs> with a smiley face
1: I I don't have a good answer to that because it was really really difficult for me like books 2 and 3 have taken so much longer than book 1 took because I did them during my junior and senior years. And, like, I was trying to draft book three while I was applying to grad school. And, like, that wasn't happening. Um, Yeah, it was, I mean, also, like, when school gets hard, I just don't have the right headspace to write. So I think an important lesson is, like, be kind to yourself and recognize that you are, in fact, overloaded and not... Because I used to, like, guilt myself, right? Like, oh, you haven't written... You haven't met your word count for, like, three days in a row. Um, But that's also because I had finals. And I, like, did not have the time to meet my word count every day like I used to because when I did that, I was not in school or it was summer. Um, So being able to do that was important um, because you will find breaks. Like summer breaks were important. Winter breaks were when I got the majority of my writing time. And just to not, I mean, like the writers who are like, oh, in order to be a real writer, you must sit down and write every day are people like trust fund babies or people who are (laughs) full-time writers. And not all of us have that privilege. Um, But the other thing is I got really good at time management and, like, setting small incremental goals for myself. And this is when I'll do a plug for a lot of apps. And I'm not, like, paid by any of these apps to sponsor them. I just, like, genuinely found them really useful. Nice. There's one called Habitica, which Mary Robinette Coel, who was one of my Odyssey instructors, recommended to us. And it's a task management app, but it, like, functions like an RPG game. So every time you, like, check something off, you get experience points and goals. Habitica is really cool, and it's free. Well, there's like a subscription model, but I never for it. There's this other app called For the Words, which is also an RPG. Like I am really motivated by RPG games because of that immediate satisfaction of having done a task, uh, like works for my brain. It's it's a way to hack your own mind. And for the Words, you battle monsters by having to write a certain number of words within a certain time period. So you have to write like 500 words in 30 minutes or something. And if you do, you beat the monster and you get gold. Oh my God,
0: that's awesome.
1: Then like you lose health or whatever. And that one is not free. There's a 30 day free trial, but the subscription is not super expensive. It's around like $4 a month, but Yeah, that was also very helpful for me in drafting because like one of my issues was like sitting down and not letting myself do anything else until I'd finished 500 words. And for the words punishes you if you get distracted and do something else because then your character dies.
0: Damn. Okay, that sounds really fun and uh, very motivating. So we'll definitely have that linked as well in your resources show notes page before we have you go. Do you have any books that you recommend, whether it's craft books or just books that kind of blew your mind? You're like, holy shit, this is how you write books. Um, If you have any, please share and we'll have that listed as well.
1: Okay, absolutely. Um, I've actually been trying to read a book a week
0: this year, and
1: that's turned into a book every day in the summer. Um, I've recently been trying to read a lot of trilogies because I need to study how like books two and three operate. And I recently finished all of N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth trilogy, and it is like staggering it's I think it's the best work of fiction that's been published in recent history Um, it is so complex and amazing the world building is ridiculous and I mentioned like I like books that change the way I look at the world and this book changes these books change everything so yeah definitely definitely read and she's like won like multiple Hugos for these books, so i like preaching to the choir. Um, <laughs> and then I have my list of other books I've read this year open, and I'll just highlight the really good ones. Trail of Lightning by Rebecca Roanhorse is coming out really soon if it hasn't already. Um, it's her debut, and it's like an indigenous Mad Max, and it's amazing. Uh, when the Emperor Was Divine by Julie Atsuka, and also The Buddha in the Attic um, is about the experiences of Japanese Americans. Um, Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, Toni Morrison's great. Um, Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer is awesome. Um, Ruth Azeki's work, All Over Creation, A Tale for Time Being and My Year of Meets, all good. Fonda Lee's Jade City. As you can tell, I read a lot of Asian women during AAPI Heritage Month and five stars to all of those books. Balzac and the Little Chinese Seamstress by Dai Sijia. It's an older book, but still good. And her body and other parties by Carmen yes oh my god part. yes
0: so it's good so, so good. good oh my god the yeah. husband stitch oh my, oh my god, god. Holy god. Shit. <laughs> i can't even i cannot even get into that right now um yes, yes i'm so glad you brought that up um, thank you so much okay that was awesome and i'm gonna i want to make sure that you make it on time for your father's day breakfast um brunch um can you let uh, listeners know where to find you before we just wrap this up
1: Oh, yeah. Um, so my website is Um If you want to reach me, you, there's a comment form on the website or kwangwrites uh, at gmail.com is my writing account, and I check that pretty frequently. I also am on Twitter quite often. Less now. I've been trying to tweet less and look at Twitter less, so I'm only there for a total of an hour a week, but I am responsive there. It, it just It will take me longer than email would. Um, yeah I think that's oh I'm also on Instagram I'm like trying to figure out how Instagram works really I just post a lot of photos of my dog but like if you're interested, I that- think
0: that's perfect <laughs> I'm da- I'm gonna follow you for your dog too because I love dogs <laughs> so that's perfect and your Instagram is the same as your Twitter handle
1: yes Kong RF and if you can't find it the link to it is on my website too
0: Perfect. So let me let you go because I don't want you to be late for brunch and have a wonderful Happy Father's Day with your dad, okay? Thank you
1: so much for your time. Thank you so so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Happy Father's Day, everyone. (laughs) Thank
0: you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Have a good one. You too. Bye. And that wraps up our episode with RF Kwang. Thank you so much for that really inspiring and motivating conversation. I loved talking with you on the show. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in as always. Please be sure to stop by her show notes page because we included our favorite quotes. And if you're planning on re-listening to this episode again, we also have the highlights from the conversation noted down in the show notes page, along with the timestamps. Head over to 88cupsofte.com slash podcast slash RF-Kwong to check it out. At the top of the show, I was so excited to announce that FabFitFun sponsored today's episode. I recently received their summer box and as soon as I saw the beautifully designed box with pops of yellow, lilac, and orange, I had the biggest smile on my face. It's filled with awesome products like this crazy new device that cleans your face while it measures your skin hydration level. My absolute favorite item is this spray that protects your hair from up to 450 degrees of heat. Most of y'all know that I bleached the hell out of my hair when I turned it platinum silver and now my hair is so damaged. So I've been using the spray every single time before I blow dry my hair and it really works. One extra special touch that I love is FabFitFun's very own newsletter that comes in the box. There's a section in there that featured favorite summer memories and it made me so nostalgic about my own travels and annual road trips and camping trips. FabFitFun seasonal subscription box is normally $49.99, but our community of storytellers gets to save $10 off your first box by using the code T at checkout over at fabfitfun.com. When you treat yourself to a box using the code T, you're also showing your support for 88 Cups of Tea. Don't forget to check out fabfitfun.com for more details. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week, and I'll catch you next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.